Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Let's get into the word today. Uh, we're reading from Mark 4, uh, starting at verse 35. I'm uh, reading through to uh, Mark 6, 6. So Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. <clears throat> that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious storm came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if, you, if we drown? He got up, rebuked the, way, the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across a lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got it out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in a town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, The men who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decalopolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers, named Jairus, Jairus, came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to, to bleeding for 12 years. 
She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you asked, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went into where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kulum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anybody know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him, that, even, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown... Among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Well, thanks for reading, Liam. And uh, g'day, brothers and sisters. It's really nice uh, to see you at Online Church on this particular Sunday. If you are um, sort of thinking about closing your Bible or shutting down your Bible app, uh, do open that back up again to Mark chapter 5 as we look at God's Word tonight and continue our series on Who is Jesus? Our journey through Mark chapter 1 to 8. I really do hope that... um, You've come here uh, to online church and that you're going okay. Um, I don't know, I'll just really quickly share. I think I've had a bit of a, a hard week this week. I think I've been a bit online churched out. I think I've been a little bit Zoomed out um, and uh, just felt a bit fragile this week, actually. And uh, But I, um, I'm feeling a bit better now. Um, I sort of put a shout out to a bunch of people and say, can you pray for me? Um, and uh, I feel like I'm sort of on the way up. I, I don't know where you're at. Um, it's, a, it's a challenging time. Um, I think I anticipated earlier on that the novelty of online church and Zooming and everything would kind of wear off, and I think I kind of hit that wall um, this past week. But um, 
maybe I'm over it and looking ahead and hoping that uh, God will continue to do good things among us as well. Can I just encourage you while I'm here before we open up the word to, um, if you can, get along to our Tuesday night prayer night. That would be a great thing to do. We meet on Zoom. We've called it the basement. Uh, The basement is often where the boiler room was in factories, which kind of gave rise to the energy and all of that to produce things. And uh, we as Christians believe that prayer is where um, the light and energy and power comes for us to to live for Jesus and love like Jesus. So come along 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. on Zoom. Uh, Have a look at Slack. You'll see the link pop up there on the Tuesday. It's It's a good time together. So can I encourage you to... To get along to that, um, speaking of prayer, uh, let's pray as we come to God's word this time. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask, Lord, that now as we look at your word, uh, Father, you would speak to us through it. Uh, Father, we pray that by your spirit and through your word, we would hear Jesus. By your spirit and through your word, we would see Jesus. And by your spirit and through your word, we would love and trust Jesus. So do a good work in us tonight through this word. And in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we, we live in a time um, and, and a place in the world where we're largely inoculated from desperate circumstances. Um, perhaps up until now, um, as I was driving to, to record this message Uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was on the radio and and he was describing uh, the outcome of the most recent National Cabinet meeting. And and in that, um, yep, there's some good signs on the health front, but we are kind of in the midst of and facing some pretty desperate economic circumstances. The numbers that he was rolling out about people who've needing to access job seeker and job keeper and the impact on our economy and migration and jobs, etc. It's, it's kind of, it's a bit desperate, to be honest. Um, but even though we are kind of in the midst of this particular kind of desperate circumstances, for most of the time, we are somewhat inoculated from desperate circumstances. Um, we're, we're largely very wealthy people. We're really well-educated. We've got access to amazing health and medical and, and psychological services that mean it's really possible for a child in our city, in our country, to grow to the age of 18 without really ever being touched with suffering or even death. We've largely not seen war. We rarely see poverty. Uh, Displaced others are not often on our doorsteps. Um, They're only really on our TV and only occasionally. But this is not the world into which the Gospels were written. In the first century AD, one third of children died before the age of one. That's one in three children died. That would affect basically almost every single family. So almost every family would carry the, the pain of having, or having lost a child. You would see him come into the world. And some of you know that pain. That, that changes you. In the first century, some of your children would grow up knowing the pain of, of losing a sibling. That would change them. But it wasn't just back then, right, where people knew desperate circumstances better than we do. It happens today as well, just not here as much. I've regularly in the past headed over to India and to Sri Lanka to teach pastors theology. Wherever I go, whenever I go, I come back and I'm reminded of just how privileged we are. I remember a pastor in Vijayawada in India asking me for $10 so that he could buy his five-year-old a pair of reading glasses so she could see. Can you imagine not being able to 
pay $10 for a pair of glasses for your five-year-old daughter. I, um, I remember pastors in Colombo in Sri Lanka telling me that they would only eat every three days because that's all they could afford. I mean, can you imagine only having one main meal every 72 hours? Now, some of us have experienced real and recent desperate circumstances. Some of us have, but most of us haven't. And as I said at the beginning, we live in a time in history and in a place in the world where we're largely inoculated from desperate circumstances. You know, in Mark's Gospel today, chapter 5, we meet two people who are really unlike us. They're two people who are in desperate circumstances. A lady who's been religiously, sexually, relationally and dead for 12 years and a 12-year-old girl who is dead. Some weird similarities there, right? Absolutely. And these two stories are significantly and deeply interwoven. You know, to understand, though, what's going on, today we need to see a technique that Mark, the writer of the gospel, uses a number of times in his account of Jesus' life and death. A technique we sort of miss, right, unless it's kind of pointed out to us. And once it's shown to us, we can sort of begin to see it all over the place throughout the gospel. Now, you might be thinking right now, Simon's about to turn this into a boring New Testament theology lecture. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to be as dry. I hope I won't be as dry. But let me say this. If you don't understand what's going on here, you're likely to find it hard to make sense of some of the things that are to come. Let me say that again. If you don't understand what's going on here, you're likely to miss some of what's going to come and it's going to be hard to make sense of rest of, lots of the rest of Mark's gospel. And the technique that Mark uses has been given a particular name. It's been given the name a sandwich. Yep, I'm not kidding. A sandwich. And because it's in Mark's gospel, they're called Markan sandwiches. Now, let me tell you, this is how it works. What we have is a story, and then that story is interrupted by a seemingly unrelated other story And then we get back to the original story. Does that make sense? So we have a story interrupted by a seemingly unrelated story, and then we get back to the original story. Now, here's the key. The meat, in this case, the ham and the cheese and the cucumber and the tomato, the meat makes sense of the bread. The meat makes sense of the bread. So the meat makes sense of the outer story. And everyone agrees, right, that in Mark's gospel there are five sandwiches. Some think there are nine, others think there are 11. But the first sandwich we stumble upon is this one in chapter 5. And it's all about a dying little girl. A Jewish synagogue leader, an important religious man named Jairus, comes to Jesus because he's in desperate circumstances. He falls at Jesus' feet and he cries out in verse 23 of chapter 5. He says this, To Jesus, my little daughter is at the point of death. So come and lay your hands on her so that she may be be well and live. And he went with them. In the days before penicillin and CAT scans and stethoscopes, a gravely sick child was a very serious matter. And it was a matter of sort of urgency. 
So Jairus goes to see the healer. And so Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house to see his daughter. And a large crowd has kind of begun to mill around Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the, the teacher of the moment. He's the one with the magic touch, or at least so they thought. And then in verse 25, we get to our next story, right? Unrelated to the first, but it will soon become key, right? Remember, meat in the sandwich. So we read in verse 25 this. We see that a, a woman has come to Jesus. We, we hear about a woman. Verse 25. There was a woman who had had a, had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in a crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I just touch his garments, I will be made well. Now, a brief word on this particular woman. This is not a picture of a woman who is struggling a little bit. She's actually the picture of the walking dead. This is a picture of the walking dead. This is a woman who is dead in every way apart from being physically dead. Religiously, she is dead because she is unclean. She cannot meet with her God in the temple. Sexually, she is untouchable, um, for her husband could not sleep with her while she was bleeding. In fact, it's very likely that her husband's divorced her by now. Uh, relationally, she's dead. She cannot bear children. She can't raise a family. And socially, she is dead. She would be an outcast from her community. And she approaches Jesus and she just wants Jesus to touch, just wants to touch him. And there's probably an element of superstition in her desire. And verse 29 tells us what happened. Uh, verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She is healed. And all she wants to do is touch Jesus anonymously and slip away. You know, please just let me slip away unseen, she probably thought. Why? Because she's just broken the law. She's just broken the law. She is unclean and she's come and touched a religious leader. All she wants to do is just like slip away, be unseen, but Jesus will have none of it. Um, verse 30, and Jesus Perceiving in himself that the power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and says, who touched my garments? And then the disciples kind of go, well, like, how can you tell who's touched your garments? There's thousands of people around and everyone's touching you, Jesus. But verse 32, but he looked around to see who had done it. And the woman, not knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. It's an amazing story. Jesus will not let her just walk away. Ever wondered why? I think there are at least two reasons for this, why Jesus just won't let her walk away. The first is this. If this woman was just to sort of simply touch Jesus and just sort of vanish into the future and back into the crowd, she'd misunderstand the gospel. I think she'd misunderstand who Jesus is. If she just walked away and thought, like, if I can just touch this kind of God, this healer, this teacher, he does miracles, I think she'd become entrenched in her superstition. She thinks right now that Jesus, that touching Jesus' clothes have saved her, but Jesus will have none of it. So he says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. 
What we see is that she's not been saved by the fabric, but she's been saved by faith. This woman has been healed. She's been saved. It's the same word in the original language in the Greek. She has been saved. She's been healed because she's come in desperate trust to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Did she have perfect faith when she approached Jesus? No. Was her faith tinged, perhaps even overrun with superstition? Superstition, Almost certainly. And yet we see Jesus respond to her with grace and mercy and life to those who turn to him, even those with broken faith, even those with weak faith, even those with wrong faith. You know, this reminds me also in Mark's gospel of a time when another man with another kind of form of broken faith, Mark chapter 9, this man comes, this father comes to Jesus. He's also in desperate circumstances. His son is demon-possessed and the demon is wanting his son to kill himself. And the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus responds, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And then we read, immediately the father's the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. See, here we see another man coming to Jesus in desperate circumstances. And Jesus says, I can do anything for those who believe. And the man then in one sentence describes your faith. He describes my faith. He describes any person who's come to put their faith in Jesus's faith. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Our relationship, brothers and sisters, in God, our relationship with God is built on faith in his son, Jesus. But it's always a faith that's a little bit weak, a little fickle, a little foible, a little fractured. We do believe, but we are racked with unbelief. But here's the thing. God doesn't expect perfect faith Just desperate faith. Just a trust in him from people who know they have nowhere else to turn. But there's a second reason why Jesus won't let this woman just kind of get away so easily. And it's because he is teaching her and he's teaching us by extension about who he is. Now, I said before that this woman has broken the law by touching Jesus. She has. Back in Leviticus chapter 15, we read about the law. We read about why this woman has broken the law in this particular way. So Leviticus 15 says, When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has that discharge. Whoever touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe with water and he will be unclean till evening. Now, just think about this for a minute. Twelve long years this woman has lived like this. Fatigued with grief, fatigued with illness, fatigued with the knowledge that anyone she touches becomes unclean or is defiled. That would be, I don't know, I can't imagine, that would be extremely draining. And Jesus now wants to teach her and wants to teach us something. I hope you noticed in that little brief reading from Leviticus 15 that there's there's always a, a direction that the defilement moves, always one direction from the unclean to the clean. 
In the Old Testament, the leper or the infected, the unclean, they had to be removed. They had to be isolated, separated, because defilement always moves in one direction from the defiled, the unclean, to the undefiled, to the pure. But do you notice with Jesus? The exact opposite happens. For the first time in history, the movement swings the other way. The tide is turned. For the first time in history, instead of an unclean person defiling another, a perfect person purifies the unclean. That's what we're being shown. Jesus shows this woman and us that he is the one who can make the unclean clean. More than that, he takes a woman who is dead in every sense of the word and makes her alive. He brings life to her in every sense. He restores her humanity. And all of a sudden, then, we're out of the story. And we're back to Jairus. We're back to the bread, the second bit of bread in the sandwich. But keep in mind that the story about the bleeding woman being restored to life from death is the the meat. It helps us understand the story about Jairus and his daughter. In verse 35, we see that this interlude that Jesus had with the woman, this life-giving touch that Jesus has given to this woman, has actually resulted in the death of another. Do you notice that? The death of a very small little girl. And her father has been with Jesus the whole time, willing him to come to my house, come to my house. My daughter is sick. And then he gets the news. Your daughter is dead. Don't lose sight of what's just happened here. The upright, religious, moral, pure Jewish leader has been kept waiting while Jesus has been dealing with an unnamed unclean, unknown, non-temple-attending nobody, and the leader's child has died. It's interesting, isn't it? The privilege and the power of the leaders of the kingdom of the world do not continue into the kingdom of God. You can imagine, right, this father's heart is crushed. The finality of death all of a sudden becomes deeply personal for him, He is a man and he is in desperate circumstances. He's now come to the end of the line. And he's told, stop bothering the teacher. But Jesus is the king of desperate circumstances. Amen. In verse 36, we see that Jairus, that sorry, Jesus hears what the servants have said to Jairus. So he turns to Jairus and says, verse 36. Overhearing verse 36, what, G- what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And here we see an important thing, the difference between fear and faith. The difference between fear and faith. You know, I, spoke, I was speaking a little while ago to a, a very wise Christian mother. Um, her children are now all grown up. They're adults And she was telling me how a number of people at the place she works at, um, some other parents, often ask her, you know, like, how did you raise your kids the way you did? Um, Your kids seem so secure, they seem so established and sort of unshakable now. Like, how did you do it? To which she replies, I didn't do it. Everything you see in them, everything you'd like maybe to see in your own children didn't come from me, it came from God. And then she explained to me what that looked like when her kids were a fair bit smaller. And she told me a story about um, her son, Dave, who's the youngest. 
Uh, one day she put Dave onto the train um, and uh, he was 12 years old. I put him on the train and said, off you go, and he made his way into the city off to high school. As he was about to you know, get on the train, he turned to his mum and said, hey, mum, I'm scared. To which she replied, hey, Will, hey, Dave, there's nothing, nothing I can do for you. I won't be there. I can't help, but Jesus can. You can trust him. You can pray to Jesus. And you can know that Jesus will be with you every second, every minute, every hour, or every, every day. And she said that's what she taught her kids. From the youngest of age, there was a rock. There was a stability. There was a a God who had them and held them and loved them and, and cared for them more than any parent could or ever would. She said that's what gave her kids the security and that sort of unshakableness in the face of life that you can only get through trusting in Jesus. What she actually did with her 12-year-old boy was replace his fear with faith. The very thing that Jesus does with Jairus and with the bleeding woman. They're actually opposites, right? Fear and faith. And Jesus says to Jairus, verse 36, don't be afraid, just believe. And you know what? He says it to you and he says it to me. As you and I are fearful about life and work and health and singleness and marriage and family and kids and COVID and the economy and our jobs, etc. and 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 and. Don't be afraid. Believe. Trust in Jesus. Well, Jesus arrives then at Jairus' home. The mourners are there. The little girl's death is being grieved and then Jesus takes charge. The little girl is not dead, he says. She's asleep and they laugh at Jesus, right? Fair enough. I mean, they, they, don't, they didn't get death wrong. They knew exactly what death was. And then Jesus walks into this little girl's room, takes her by the hand and utters the words, Talitha kum, which we're told in our Bibles means little girl, I say to you, get up which is a pretty accurate translation, but probably a bit wooden as well. Gives us the meaning, but it kind of lacks the feeling. What Jesus probably actually says to her is something like this, hey, honey, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. Do you see the difference? Jesus rouses this little girl from death, just like a parent rouses their child from sleep. Do you see the point? Death to Jesus is like sleep To us, this man, this Messiah, this Jesus, this God holds even the power of death in his hand. And Jesus and Jairus' daughter is given her life back. And Jairus gets his daughter back. Now I said, right, that the meat interprets the bread. I said the story of the bleeding woman helps us understand the story of Jairus. Well, this is how it works. Story one, okay, story one, the first bit of bread. We meet Jairus, who thinks he has a sick daughter. So he goes to Jesus in faith, in hope, and in trust. Story two, that the meat, the story of the bleeding woman. We meet a woman who we think is sick, but she's not. Mark wants us to know that she's not sick. She's actually dead, not physically, but in every other way she is dead. So Jesus meets a woman who appears to be sick but is actually dead and then restores her life. He reanimates her. He restores her, gives her back her humanity. 
And then we get back to story three, the other piece of bread. Jairus's hope just turns to dust as his sick girl dies. As his servants say, hey, don't bother the teacher anymore, it's all over. But story two shows us that death is not beyond the power of Jesus. And so we read from read story three with fresh eyes, with new eyes now. We read it with an expectation that death is not beyond this man, Jesus. So Jairus isn't told, is told, don't be afraid, just believe. And of course, Jesus just awakens the little girl. It's clever, isn't it? This is how the two stories come together. This is what the two stories mean. That Jesus comes with the power to overcome death. And he also comes with the power to restore humans to restore our fallen humanity. You see, Jesus Christ's earthly ministry was one of giving back to undeserving sinners like you and me, our humanity. We tend to think of the miracles, right, of the Gospels as interruptions in the natural order. Yet German theologian Jürgen Moltmann points out that miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but a restoration of the natural order the way things were meant to be. You know, we've become, I think, so used to our fallen world that sickness and disease and pain and COVID and viruses and death just kind of seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. Jürgen Moltmann says this, quote, When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonised and wounded. You see, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God in the flesh. He walked planet Earth, rehumanizing the dehumanized, cleansing the uncleansed. Why? Because his heart refused to let him sleep in. Sadness confronted Jesus in every town. So wherever he went, wherever he was confronted with pain and hurt and longing, he spread the good contagion of his love and his cleansing mercy. I love this English Puritan theologian, uh, Thomas Goodwin said, quote, Christ is love covered over in flesh. Christ is love covered over in flesh. Picture it. Pull back the flesh on the Stepford wives. Pull back the flesh on the Terminator and you have a machine. Pull back the flesh on the Lord Jesus Christ and you find love and mercy and grace. You know, if compassion, mercy, love and grace grace clothed itself in a human body and went walking around this earth, what would it look like? Well, we don't have to wonder. I started this message by saying that, that we live in a time in history, we live in a place in the world where we're largely, we've largely been inoculated against desperate circumstances. And that's all true, right? But not entirely. Because largely inoculated doesn't mean entirely inoculated. The fact is we don't escape desperate circumstances here in the affluent West. 
we certainly are experiencing that right now, but you know, probably up until now, we've been able to kind of mask or ignore or postpone desperate circumstances. But surely none of us is so arrogant to think that death doesn't crouch at our door, are we? Surely none of us actually believe that money will make us secure, do we? Surely none of us think that education is our saviour or education is our kids or our kids-to-be saviour. Surely we don't. Not if we're wise. If we're wise, we will know that all of those things can become great distractions to the reality of our world. And in the same way that putting perfume on a corpse does not change the reality of the situation, nor does long life, money or education. We can run, but not hide. We can ignore, but we can't escape. We can distract, but we can't change the fact that desperate circumstances are the lot of every person who lives in this broken, fallen world. And the words of Jesus to Jairus... And the words of Jesus to the bleeding woman are the words that we need to hear this day. Don't be afraid, just believe, go in peace. Don't be afraid, just believe, go in peace. You know, for me, right, both of these stories, they raise a question. Like, they raise the question, why? Like, why did this woman have to live 12 years with awful, debilitating, death-like disease? Why did this little girl and her family need to go through the grief of her death? And the answer is, I don't really have any idea. See, the thing with desperate circumstances that befall us all is that they are often shrouded in mystery. You know, we long for answers. I long for answers to those things more than anything. And often we get, well, almost silence. Let me finish today with the words of Paul Tripp from his really great book called New Morning Mercies. He says this, The best theology will not remove mystery from your life. So rest is found in trusting the one who rules, is all, and knows no mystery. God is with you in your moments of darkness because he will never leave you. But your darkness isn't dark to him. Your mysteries aren't mysterious to him. Your surprises don't surprise him. He understands all the things that confuse you the most. Not only, he goes on, are your mysteries not mysterious to him, but he is in complete charge of all that is mysterious to you and me. Remember today that there is one who looks at what you see as dark and sees light. And as you remember that, remember too that he is the ultimate definition of everything that is wise, good, true, loving, and faithful. He holds you both. He holds both you and your mysteries in his gracious hands. And because he does, you can find rest even when the darkness of mystery has entered your door. Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid. Just believe and go in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this part of your word. Lord, thank you for the reminder today that Jesus has the power over death. 
And Father, thank you that we see a beautiful picture here in these two stories of how Jesus comes, not just to overcome our ultimate enemy, death, but to give us true humanity even now. Father, help us, especially in these uncertain times, to believe, to trust you, and to know your peace that transcends all understanding. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.